When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Netanyahu said that Israel is headed for a total victory, that victory was a matter of month, and that the terms that Hamas is offering would be suicidal. He called those terms delusional and said that if Israel were to accept the deal, it could lead to another massacre. I'm David Knowles, and this is Battlelines. Regardless of who stands with Israel, Israel will fight until this battle is won. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. I've made wartime decisions. I know the choices are never clear or easy for the leadership. I just find bombs and I find dead people, but it's a really scary thing for me. In this episode of Battle Lines, I speak to The Telegraph's Middle East correspondent, Natalia Vasilyeva, about the latest abortive attempts to agree a ceasefire in the Israel-Gaza conflict. Berlin correspondent James Rothwell explains how Iran's Shahid drones have changed warfare around the world. And I ask our economics reporter, Melissa Lawford, what's going wrong for the Chinese economy? It's Friday, the 9th of February, 2024. This week... Benjamin Netanyahu rejected a potential ceasefire agreement with Hamas. I start my conversation with our Middle East correspondent, Natalia Vasilieva, by asking the obvious question. Why? Natalia Vasilieva, Benjamin Netanyahu has rejected a ceasefire and hostage deal with Hamas. Can you tell us what has taken place this week? How do we come to this? Hi, David, and hi, everyone. It's been quite a busy 24 hours, and there was a predominant feeling in Israel that a deal to release Israeli hostages was within a touching distance. Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, was on his fifth Middle East tour in Israel in the region this week. And he was in Israel on Wednesday, just around the time when Hamas was expected to deliver its response to the Israeli proposal for the deal. And it coincided with Israel's apparent decision to reject that response out of hand. uh, It was quite interesting that Netanyahu was having talks with Blinken, and Netanyahu was not planning any press availabilities on that day, but out of the sudden he called a press conference for the local press, and he made it clear that what Hamas is suggesting, which is a um, permanent truce and withdrawal of 
the IDF troops was a complete non-starter for Israel. He didn't mince words. He said that Israel is headed for a total victory, as he described it. And he said that victory was a matter of month and that the terms that Hamas is offering would be suicidal. He called those terms delusional and said that if Israel were to accept the deal, it could lead to another massacre. And again, Netanyahu has been under pressure from hostages' families for quite some time. And shortly after his announcement, the families of some of the hostages and former hostages who were released in November called a press conference and they looked absolutely shattered by what they saw, what they heard from Netanyahu. And they made it clear that they were absolutely disappointed by Netanyahu's decision to reject the deal. There was one former hostage who actually made it clear that to her, the war in Gaza already made no sense if the hostages were not being released. She quoted Netanyahu saying that if he continues with his attempt to dismantle Hamas, as as he put it, there won't be any hostages left to save. So quite an agonizing moment for the hostages and their families. And um, as some of our listeners might know, the hostages' families hold weekly protests in Tel Aviv and around the country. And it would definitely be something to watch out for this weekend because it sounds like there was one chance for this deal and it absolutely failed. So Netanyahu's rejection, do you think that's based on a calculation that the IDF are winning? As you said, the quote was total victory. What's the state of the fighting at the moment? I would say that those comments took everyone by surprise. We're not seeing anything like that on the battlefield. Again, it, it depends on how, how you define winning. Uh, I guess from, from the start of the war in Gaza, Israel made it very clear that one of those goals was to capture or kill Hamas leadership. And uh, now almost four months of the conflict and three months of the ground maneuver, not a single Hamas leader has been captured. We keep hearing about terrorist infrastructure being destroyed, but now and again, there are still rocket attacks on southern Israel. And it's very hard to define this total victory. Actually, just before coming onto this podcast, I was talking to a former IDF official. I'm not going to give his name because he wouldn't like us to, but I asked him about this total victory and what it could mean. His explanation sort of varied a little bit from Netanyahu, was what Netanyahu was saying, which is no one in the IDF has any idea that they're going to kill every single Hamas terrorist, that they're going to eliminate the force as such. What they are striving to do, is, as he put it, they are trying to dismantle the organization. They're trying to make sure that it's not an organized force. So Whatever insurgency we might have, it's not for the lack of trying. And it's definitely, there's no such thing as total victory in a complicated situation like we have right now. Natalia, how is this continuing fighting reflected in what you see in your neighborhood and around Jerusalem? I remember previously you've spoken about maybe seeing sometimes reservists with rifles, that sort of thing. Do you still see that all the time? What's the atmosphere in the city? Yeah, you, I, I still see it all the time. And I mean, everyone is still in a war mode. You know, bars and restaurants are open, and but also I don't think that people are, you know, no one is partying, no one's celebrating. Because it's not just about the hostages. Obviously, it's an impossible situation for their families, but a lot of people are still fighting in the front. There are still about 200,000 Israelis who have been evacuated from their homes in the south or in the north. And there's no prospect of an immediate return for them. Natalia, can you tell us about your trip to the north then? Why did you go and what did you see? Yeah, so I went exactly to the same area where I've been a couple of times. So it was very important for me to 
basically go to the same place and compare what it was like in, I think, first time I was there in at the end of October and then at the end of November. So we drove all the way to the Lebanese border to the town of Kiryachmona, which is the largest town in the north to have been evacuated. The evacuation orders there affected about 23,000 people. And we also drove around immediately close to the border to a couple of local kibbutzim. And yeah, and we also drove to this amazing upscale hotel about two kilometers from the Lebanese border, which is absolutely empty. They haven't had visitors for months. And there's only one manager who stops by once and again. This time he was there to invite the gardeners to trim the bushes and trees to make sure it's not in a state of disrepair when it does reopen. But yeah, Kiryachmone is a ghost town and further you go up north, uh, the emptier the roads get. There's definitely more, I wouldn't say there's more uh, military presence compared to two months ago, but the military installations sort of appear to be more entrenched. For example, one road we were driving at I was sort of quite shocked when I was driving on the road and when I saw those massive concrete barriers, like two or three story high, like blocking the entire road. And I wasn't quite sure if there's a road up ahead. And it turned out that you had to zigzag from one lane to another, obviously done for to prevent a possible infiltration, whatever, that's what on everyone's mind. But I guess my main takeaway from the trip is that the very few people who stayed, because there are some last holdouts who are staying or who uh, evacuated and returned, and the local first responders who are sort of staying in case of a Hezbollah infiltration, they are running out of patience. They feel like Israel is running out of time. It's been four months since families from the north have been living in hotels or in some temporary accommodation. And this situation doesn't look temporary anymore. It's already been four months. So people in the North are searching for answers. When is this going to be over? How can this be fixed? In terms of physical impact, the physical impact from Hezbollah rockets on the North, obviously, is nothing compared to the barrages that we saw in the South in the first few weeks of the war. But it's a constant threat. You know, just this this morning before going on this podcast, I I heard reports about a direct hit on Kiryachmona, like the same place we were two days ago which means it's not safe to return. And locals and people who are defending those kibbutzim, they're they're asking, how long should we wait? Should we wait for another diplomatic solution? Or should we think of a more radical solution to the problem? Because I think my sense was that people are running out of patience for any sort of diplomatic solution with Hezbollah because they all cite the UN resolution from 2006, which was supposed to have secured the border which was supposed to have secured the disarmament of any military groups in the area, but those attacks keep happening. When you said they might be searching for a more radical solution, did they give you any sense of what that might be? Oh, yeah. I mean, from this retired old man who came back to his town to a young startup entrepreneur who is guarding his kibbutz, they all say, we need to attack, we need to go, we need to cross the border, we need to set up the same buffer zone that the IDF is setting up in the South. I mean, it sounds very radical, but that's that's reflect that, that reflects the frustration and the passions that that people are, are, are feeling there because time is running out and they, and they feel that nothing is changing. Could I ask you a little bit more about the 
diplomatic scene. As you said, it was Secretary of State Blinken's fifth visit to the region to try and broker some sort of ceasefire. I'm just looking at some of the remarks he's given today. He said that the Gazan death toll is too high. He says, Israelis were dehumanized in the most horrific way on October the 7th. The hostages have been dehumanized every day since, but that cannot be a license to dehumanize others. That's on our live blog on Thursday morning. Do you get a sense that relations between Israel and the US, its biggest, most important ally, are getting a lot more strained now? What's the sense that you get from the Israeli media, from 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 everyday life, and from what you know when they're meeting, when they're trying to come to some sort of agreement? Yeah, I think I came across this comment somewhere yesterday on social media. It was something to do with next time Blinken visits, Netanyahu will make a doormat with Blinken's face on it and he's going to step on it. It's just, it reflects how disconnected the public rhetoric from the White House is to what Israel is doing on the ground. You look at Blinken meeting with Netanyahu, making it clear that an offensive in the south of Gaza, in Rafah, is something that Israel should avoid. Then uh, literally an hour later, Netanyahu faces the press and he says, we need to go all the way. I'm ordering troops to prepare for an operation in Rafah. The only pocket of, I don't want to say pocket of calm, but the pocket that hasn't been affected by carpet bombing of, of Gaza. It, from what it looks like, it's just the Israel is not responding to what the US is suggesting. What Netanyahu is doing, it plays really well with a part of the domestic audience that would like to have the U.S. as an important ally and as something that brings aid, that brings weapon supplies, but they wouldn't like to see the U.S. calling the shots. And I think very early in the war, I heard someone from Israel's political circle saying that we're a sovereign nation. It's up to us to decide what to do. And yeah, in a very telling episode, the other day there were reports in Israeli media about Netanyahu telling Americans behind closed doors that Israel is not, quote, a banana republic. And that was his reaction to Blinken's request to meet with Herzi Halevi, the head of the general staff. It was his reply to say that you don't, it's a sovereign, we are a sovereign nation. If you want to meet with the head of the military, you need to have me in the room or some other political leadership. Again, the question is how the U.S. replies, what it can do. The only thing that comes to mind is recent sanctions against several Israeli settlers which didn't go down well in Israel at all, not only in the far right quarters, but obviously it doesn't sound like the US is going to do anything that could impact Israel's position on the battlefield. Because again, like Blinken made it very clear that we support Israel in its fight to eradicate Hamas and and in making sure that October 7 doesn't repeat. Natalia, is there anything we haven't spoken about that you think is important for our listeners this week? Yesterday's press conference by Benjamin Netanyahu was quite extraordinary. And I would say that this weekend would be something to watch out for in terms of the families of hostages and protesters supporting the hostages, because it looks like Israel had a really good chance to secure a deal and didn't happen. So it would be very important to to see what happens with the protest movement, whether how, how angry people actually are to this uh, demonstrative decision on Netanyahu's part to completely reject the deal. Natalia, thank you so much. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. 
no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The sound of Iranian Shahid drones are a grim and regular occurrence for Ukrainian civilians as Russia uses them to pound civilian infrastructure in its war against the country. James Rothwell, the Telegraph's Berlin correspondent, has been looking into Iran's drone program. He's examined how the international pariah manufactured a weapon that is having such an impact on battlefields around the world. Here's our conversation. James, thank you so much for your time. Can you take us back to September 2013, when a select group of journalists got the world's first glimpse of the Shahid drone? Yes, so it was September 2013, and just to set the stage a little back, uh, bit, this was before the outbreak of the Yemen civil war, it was nearly 10 years ago, the overall picture of drone technology looked very different. The United States was considered the sort of master of the drone. And back then, the Iranians were producing these sort of knockoffs of American drones. They'd intercept one, capture it, reverse engineer it, see how it worked, and then try to put their own version of it together. And they basically weren't very good. And so when this, what we now know to be a rather fateful press conference or ceremony happened when Ali Jafari, the then commander in chief of the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard, stood up and said, here's the new one. I'm paraphrasing here, but it's amazing. There was a little bit of scepticism from the rest of the world. There was a sense that, well, they've made some of these drones before. They're basically cheap knockoffs of the American version. We don't need to worry uh, about them too much. And we managed to dig up a picture from that ceremony, which shows the drone. And it looks like this rather unwieldy, bulky sort of mini airplane type thing. It's not like the, the more streamlined models that we've been seeing blowing up all over the place in, in the Middle East and Europe. But it was a very important moment for Iran's drone program, we now know, because this was the sort of prototype that would get upgraded and evolved over the years and turn into this very cheap but also very dangerous drone which is now being mass produced and sent to Russia for use against uh, the Ukrainian soldiers and we know that Iranian proxy groups militia groups that are sort of uh, indirectly connected to Iran that uh, attack nations countries forces with whom they share a sort of animosity towards Israel and America being the obvious ones. We see them being used much more heavily and much more dangerously, the attacks on the commercial ships in the Red Sea, or indeed the attacks on US forces in places like Jordan, and those are being launched from Iraq and Syria, where there are lots of 
pro-Iran proxy militia groups too. So it was a big moment at the time, but nobody realised it. They thought it's just another drone that the Iranians have put together. But no, it was in fact the beginning of what was going to be a really quite alarming phase of Iran's drone programme. Well, let's set up the basics then. Looking around in 2024, so presumably, as you said, to the Middle East and to Ukraine, what is our Shahid drone? How does it work? The Shahed is basically a kamikaze drone. It's not like the drones that you see on TV that people use where they're controlling with it with a remote control and you can watch it fly around and see where it's going. You set some GPS coordinates, you tell it to detonate at a certain location, you send it off and it will, however it does it, will kind of find its way there and detonate upon impact. And we know, and as, as you were saying before the recording, you've witnessed this yourself in Ukraine, there's this horrible situation really where you might be going around your daily business in a city like Kiev you'll hear this terrifying lawnmower like whir overcomes the drone and then there'll be a distant explosion as it detonates on something that the Russians have decided uh, might be militarily useful to destroy or there's also been a lot of civilian casualties from these drones too and that adds to the sort of terror of them so they're not strategic weapons. They're not going to change the outcome of the overall war, but their two primary functions are for these low-scale attacks on a single target that the Russians or the Houthis think is, is worth blowing up. But there's also an element of terror to them. They terrify the population. There's, it's very scary to live in a city where these sort of robotic entities can just appear out of nowhere, swarm around and start blowing stuff up. And that's I think psychologically what makes them very difficult to deal with if you are in a country that is under drone warfare. So why did the Iranians decide to manufacture it? You mentioned that they're you know, copying the Americans, but what's their broader strategic goal behind this program? So the, the drone program that Iran has is, first of all, it's kind of the brainchild of the Revolutionary Guard, which we alluded to earlier. This is a elite sort of, you could say, sort of special forces type organization in Iran. It's a parallel power structure to uh, the regular Iranian army. It's loyal to the supreme leader. And the IRG plays a big role in offering expertise, arms, funding and advice to Iranian proxies all over the region. And over the years, they've done it, for example, with training. Qasem Soleimani, who was a revered general in the IRGC that was assassinated by Trump in 2020, he was known to be traveling around the region and offering, as I said, expertise, training advice. And the drones became a really useful part of this program in the context of arming Iran's proxy groups. And the main reason behind that is they're very, very cheap, and they're not that difficult to make either. It wouldn't be a gross exaggeration to characterize this drone as a, a a sort of a mobile phone and, and some propellers strapped to, or wings rather, strapped to a bomb. It's very, very crude technology. It's very easy to mass produce them. That makes them attractive to the proxy groups for two reasons. One, as I said, cheap to put them together, relatively easy to get them over to the proxy in part form or assembled or however it might be done. But the other really interesting thing about these drones is that if you want to shoot one down, and this is how a, an expert at the European Council on Foreign Relations explained it to me recently, you've got to use ammunition that's much more valuable than the drone itself to get rid of it. So it kind of degrades the military capabilities of the armies that are being attacked by these drones. And, and that's why the consensus tends to be that they're more of an annoyance than a, a sort of super weapon that's going to change the tide of the war. They degrade the very expensive ammunition that you need to rely on to shoot them down. They terrorise the civilian population. And most importantly of all, they're very, very cheap. Can you tell us what happened to Tower 22 in Jordan then? 
Yes, so Tower 22 is an American military base in Jordan, and there was a recent attack which shocked Washington, shocked everybody really, because after weeks and weeks of these militia groups launching attacks on US bases without really having much of an impact, they fired what US officials say was a Shahed drone. It detonated, it killed three US soldiers, very significant escalation, and it injured somewhere in the region of 20 to 30 people. And that really concentrated efforts on sort of countering the drone program from the perspective of the West. But it also focused attention on it. I mean, people who've followed the drone story for a couple of years, the Shahed is something that crops up in stories quite a lot. In 2021, over the summer, the Mercer Street vessel was attacked. And it was, guess what, a Shahed drone that was used. There have been similar cases like that. It's been sort of loitering in the background of the conversation. But because three US troops got killed this time, as I said, people really paid attention to it. What does the production of these drones and their and, and, and the fact that Iran is selling them and sharing them with their allies, with their proxy group, what, what, what's that meant for specifically Iranian-Russian relations? It's had a really significant impact on Russia-Iran relations, absolutely. As we all know, the Russians invaded Ukraine. It didn't go anything like how they planned. They basically got stuck or they got, to put it bluntly, creamed by the Ukrainian military. And there was time for a change of tactics, a change of approach. Russia had just been hit with a huge number of crippling sanctions as a result of the invasion. That created production issues in terms of its army. And they turned to Iran because Iran, which has come under so many other types of sanctions over the years in the context of its nuclear program, they turned to Iran as a bit of an expert on evading sanctions, essentially. They knew this is a country that has been quite creative in how it can put together military hardware, even though it's under intense sanctions. And the result of that, as you know, David, is that the Iranians started sending not just drones, but also lots of missiles over to Russia for use in the ongoing full-scale invasion of Ukraine. The missiles are probably, the experts say, perhaps a bigger concern than the drones for reasons we've already discussed. A drone is not going to, it's not a strategic weapon that that changes the tide of the war, but they, they are a big concern. And the bigger picture here is an emerging security alliance between the Russians and the Iranians coalescing around opposition to the West, opposition to the United States. And that has worried a lot of people. This idea that we are perhaps beginning to see in this conflict the early stages of global alliances forming in the same way that they did in World War One and World War Two, and, and that's why it's caused such such worry uh, all over the place. We've spoken about Iran and Russia then, but let's move on to the proxies. You write in your article, quoting from you here, there's been a long-running debate in intelligence circles over how much control Iran maintains over its drones and how they are used once they arrive in the hands of their proxies. Could you take us inside that debate and lay out the implications for us? Yeah, it's a really interesting debate, and it got even more interesting after the current stage of the the Israel-Hamas conflict, because... There's always been a bit of uncertainty around what a proxy is in the Iranian context. And when I used to do my old job in Jerusalem and I'd speak to Israeli military officials, I'd always be curious to say to them, when you talk about Iranian proxies, do you mean a group that is sort of remote controlled by Tehran, that is told exactly where to go, exactly what to attack, what munitions to use, that sort of thing? Or are you talking about a slightly looser affiliation between Iran and the proxy group? They've got common goals, they don't like Israel, they don't like America, and therefore they collaborate or cooperate in certain areas. And for a long time, this was actually a bit of a 
sort of heated discussion. Some people, the more hawkish people on the spectrum of the Iran debate, would say, no, they're basically remote controlled. They're really Iranian forces in, in everything but name. The reason that Iran uses them as a proxy is to create one layer of remove so that if they do end up directly attacking Israel or the United States, it doesn't spark a full-scale war uh, with Iran, even though in that line of argument, they're ultimately the people uh, sort of ordering the attack. And then on the further end of the spectrum, other people would say, well, if you look at the example of Hamas, they've always emphasized that they're an independent, as they style themselves, a resistance movement. It's a relationship of convenience between them and Tehran. This is really about a transactional relationship where they get access to, to funding and weapons. What happened that changed this debate in the early stages of the Israel-Hamas war is that Hamas actually went out on the record and was just openly saying, you know, that they wanted to thank the Iranians for arming them and for funding them. And that was a really interesting moment because before then, the Iranian, the, excuse me, Hamas had been quite coy, really, about how deep that relationship was. If you, as I did, go into Gaza and you'd interview Hamas officials, you wouldn't really get a straight answer from them about what the nature of that relationship was. But as a result of, of that conflict, we, we now know really something that the perhaps the more hawkish commentators always said, which is that it's actually quite a deep relationship. It may not be as deep as the Iranians literally commanding all of it from Tehran, you know, like as if the whole thing is a sort of giant chessboard. But the relationship is undoubtedly closer than many people previously assumed. James, you've laid out the Iranian strategy here and its relationship with, with its proxies. What do we know of the West's or other actors' response to this? In the, what, what, what are people doing in the face of mass-produced, extremely cheap, quite annoying, but when they get through, devastatingly effective drones? Yeah, it's a really good question. The one thing that the West has been relying on for a while is trying to cut off the supply chains and funding flows that allow Iran, for example, to produce this sort of weapon. And that's via sanctions. It clearly hasn't really worked. And there's been a lot of criticism of the sanctions-led approach to Iran. As I said, the more hawkish people in that debate say that well, they're now actually saying it's time to bomb Iran, which for most people probably is going much too far. But there's a bit of disappointment about whether sanctions really worked. It, it, it clearly hasn't deterred Iran from expanding the drone program significantly. And then the other issue, and this is why the, this is why the drones are sort of a rather clever tactic, really, they are a problem. They are a cause for concern. They are an annoyance. They are harassment and they can be deadly. But there are so many other areas of, for example, the Ukraine conflict where the need for attention and work and funding and different types of weapons is much more urgent. Drones, for example, probably aren't going to make a decisive impact on, say, the Eastern Front. As you know, that's much more a question of who can produce the most artillery shells uh, and who can capture land. So if the top priorities are things like, you know, sort of nuclear warfare, and then the absolute lowest priorities is who's got the right boots, the, the drones, it's probably fair to say, kind of sit on the lower half of that sort of that spectrum. That's really fascinating. I mean, looking at all of this, and maybe zooming out slightly, um, would you say that Iran's drone program has been a bit of a strategic win for them? It sort of escalated conflicts around the Middle East. It's been a boon to the economy. They got closer to Russia and, and have survived Western sanctions. I mean, absolutely. From the Iranian perspective, if you sort of try to put yourself in the mindset of a Revolutionary Guard commander or someone senior in the Iranian regime, this has really paid off for them. They have been able to build a de facto army dotted all over the Middle East which is capable of attacking 
American interests that's capable of attacking Israel too, without any significant blowback for the Iranian leadership. The proxy network allows them to strike and then throw their hands up and say, hey, it wasn't us. It was this militia group. We didn't have anything to do with it. And of course, that's what we saw, by the way, with the Tower 22 attack, the Iranians distancing themselves from it. Where it gets really interesting, though, is the outcome or the ramifications of the Tower 2022 attack. This was a case where three US soldiers were killed. It's a major escalation. And there's some concerns that the proxy group that, that, that decided to carry out the attack, maybe independently, maybe with coordination from Tehran, we're not sure, that it may have gone too far and that this is going to upset that delicate balance of the pro- proxy networks. Usually, if you launch an attack as a proxy group, the thinking is that you could be fairly secure in the knowledge that it won't come back and hit the Iranians at home. It's something that you, the militia, will have to deal with, but it's not going to trigger, as it were, World War III or some sort of wider conflict. When American soldiers start getting killed, that really upsets that equation and things start to get potentially very dangerous. James, is there anything else we haven't said or anything I haven't asked you that you think is important for our listeners to hear and understand? I think one of the other things that's worth mentioning about Iran is that the way that these drones work and the way that they've become apparently much more sophisticated than before and much better at, for example, evading US air defences in the context of the the Tower 22 attack. I think it shows that the West may have really underestimated the creativity of Iran and the steps that it's willing to go to in order to cause as much trouble as possible for US troops stationed in the Middle East. And also that it's willing to indirectly wage war against Israel as well in very creative ways. And I say this as a former Jerusalem correspondent, so this is something that I used to hear a lot when I spoke to the Israeli officials. I think there was always a bit of disappointment from the Israelis when they would try to, as it were, bang the drum about Iran when they went to visit Washington and London. I think there was a bit of frustration and disappointment that those big, powerful Western countries didn't really seem to be from the Israeli perspective, waking up to the danger. And I suspect a lot of those people are feeling vindicated now about the alarm that they expressed some years ago. James Rothwell, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Prices in China are falling at their fastest rate in 15 years, as Beijing struggles to arrest the slump engulfing the world's second largest economy. Analysts fear that the communist authorities' efforts to stabilise markets and boost the economy are failing. So how did China get into this position? What exactly is going wrong? And why are its efforts to arrest the slump failing? And what does this mean for the world? I spoke to our economics reporter, Melissa Lawford. Red warning lights are flashing over the Chinese economy. What's happening? Okay, let me talk you through the warning signs because there are a lot of them. The latest one we've seen today is the inflation data and shows that in quite a stark contrast to what we are used to in the UK or have got used to, China is actually in deflation. Prices are falling. They shrank by 0.8% in December. I think that was the fourth month in a row they've declined. Part of that is things like massive volatility in the pork market. And, and there are some base effects in there. But even those things don't counteract the fact that basically, to, to quote Pantheon Macroeconomics, demand is insipid. So that's one thing. On top of that, an even bigger thing is the property downturn. It's now in its third year. And while the headline falls in 
prices don't sound that big. I mean, you know, we're talking about a few percent decline prices. It's the sales figures where this is really showing up. So transactions of new homes in December were down by nearly 26%. The December before that, they fell by more than 30%. The December before that, they fell by a fifth. And you can really see the cumulative impact there. So the property sector is in a very, very bad way. Then China also has a big demographic problem. We have it here, they have it worse. So the population shrank last year by 2 million people. And this means basically old people are, the the weighting of old people versus working people is going in the direction that you do not want it. So in 2000, there were 10 workers for every retiree. Now there are five and that number is going to halve again in the coming decades. On top of these three things I've just mentioned, we had the stock market hitting five-year lows a week or two ago, falling exports. Last year, Chinese exports declined year-on-year for the first time since 2016, by about 4% year-on-year. We also got record high youth unemployment, which actually we don't have any recent data on because the Chinese government stopped publishing it last summer, which tells you quite a lot, I think. We've also got really low consumer confidence and we've got falling investment. So there is a, a sort of nasty cocktail of warning signs there. How serious, putting all these things together, how serious is this for China? Basically, I mean, you, you look at the headline GDP figures. And the IMF says last year they think GDP in China grew by 5.4%. And this year they think GDP is going to grow by 4.6%. Now, you or I could sit there and think, well, the IMF is forecasting 0.6% growth in the UK this year. So it sounds like China's doing quite well. But the figures are basically incomparable. Because we have to take a step back and look at what China is trying to do. And what Xi Jinping is trying to do is turn China into a high-income country. And to achieve that, you need really high levels of growth. And when you put the levels of growth that we're seeing in China at the moment into context, you know, pre-financial crisis, 10% was kind of the average. So it was a real step down. And that step down is very dangerous for China because... You really need very high levels of growth for people's standard of living to be improving. That's sort of one reason why all of this matters for China. The really big problem here is whether or not there's going to be a debt crisis. And to look at that question, we need to go back a little bit to the causes of all of the warning signs that we are seeing at the moment. All of that growth, all of that really, really fast growth that we used to see, it it was driven by really high levels of borrowing, really high levels of investment and a heavy dependence on the property sector. Property, I think, account for about a fifth of Chinese GDP. I mean, and we're talking about the world's second largest economy here. I mean, that's big. It's not just people investing in property, it's local governments investing in property. It's, it's building entire new cities that aren't necessarily going to be populated. I mean, this big housing bubble, a house price to income ratio in Shanghai is four times higher than in New York. I mean, it's unsustainable. And then what happened at the end of 2021 was we saw the collapse of Evergrande, the property giant. Now, Evergrande has debt of about 
$300 billion, uh, it's huge. And when it defaulted on a bond payment, uh, it triggered a load of other connected defaults. The Chinese government stepped in. We saw some support measures that, you know, they, they managed to kind of curtail this, what could have spiraled into something really terrifying. But that toll is is ongoing. And we saw Country Garden, which is another property giant, which has debts of about $200 billion, also defaulted on a payment at the end of last year. The IMF estimates there's off-balance sheet government debt in China is between $7 trillion and $11 trillion. This debt is things like corporate bonds issued by local governments so that they can build bridges and they can build roads and all of this stuff. But where's the return coming from? There's this kind of time bomb sitting under everything because these financing vehicles are also tied to the banking sector. UBS thinks about 13% of Chinese banks' assets have uh, exposure to these local government financing vehicles. So basically, if the property downturn gets much worse, we could see uh, some kind of financial crisis. That's the risk. It's China. The government doesn't let things like that happen. I mean, maybe I'm going to eat my words, but every analyst I speak to says, you know, they would be amazed if the government just let that happen. And we we have seen them step in with quite a lot of support measures. But that that's the risk. That's why we need to be worried. What might this mean? What does it mean for the rest of the world then? Considering China is, as you said, the second largest economy on the planet. There's two parts to that, I think. There's what does a slowdown in growth and a sluggishness in China mean for the rest of the world? And then and then what would a kind of cataclysmic event that probably won't happen, but is something that we should talk about? What would that mean? Germany, I don't know if you've seen any of the economic data coming out of Germany recently, but it's not very nice. It's not very good. And, and one of the big problems that is hitting Germany is a uh, fall in demand for exports to China. It's quite exposed to that, uh, in, in addition to having been very heavily exposed to the energy crisis in, in Europe. I feel like we can sit here and have a degree of, I don't know, schadenfreude or, I don't know, there's a kind of anti-Western dialogue. Maybe we could sit there and think, oh, it's a good thing if, if China's not doing so well. But the reality is it's a bad thing for us. If China's economy is not doing well, that hits our exports, that hits the world's exports. Uh, all of these things are so interconnected. I mean, and another thing that has been a problem for China is uh, the cost of living crisis in the West. That's massively dampened demand for China's exports. You know, I mean, we we all know how interconnected our supply chains are. Uh, we're all exposed to these problems. And just finally then, what do you think this, this these problems mean for China in the months and years to come? And any more thoughts you have maybe on how Xi Jinping is dealing with this crisis? Well, I mean, one thing... We have seen Xi Jinping take a lot of measures. They've made it easier for property developers to get lending. They've eased mortgage rules. They've, they have stepped in. They've injected a load of liquidity. It, but they haven't acted on the scale that they did in the wake of the financial crisis. And there is a hesitancy there because President Xi Jinping wants to move away from that model of economic dependence on property development and investment. He's doing that consciously. 
And so he's been a catch-22 situation where, you know, there is this short-term demand to prop everything up. But ultimately, what he wants to do is make the economy much more sustainable, to move away from property development and towards an economy that is orientated around consumption and domestic demand. That's harder to do when demand is low, your economy is in deflation, and you've got this demographic challenge. But that's what he's trying to do. And that that would improve the outlook for China. But there's a kind of conflict of aims and hopes. And what people keep warning about is that if he loses sight of that and steps in, he's just going to kick the can down the road of all of these bigger problems. So if you had to sum up your feelings and thoughts on the future of the Chinese economy, in a sentence, what would you say? Watch what the government does, I think, because they have a lot of control, a lot of influence, and they're very tuned in to these issues. I don't think we're going to see a kind of organic progression of anything. Melissa Lawford, thank you so much. Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our news, analysis and dispatches from the ground in Israel and Gaza, subscribe to The Telegraph. Or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battle Lines on your preferred podcast app. And, if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. Battle Lines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine, you can listen to Battle Lines' sister podcast, Ukraine the Latest. Battle Lines is produced by David Dargahi, and the executive producers are Louisa Wells and David Knowles. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.